Welcome to Witch Talks, a series for spiritual seekers, witches, and enlightened souls. I'm Hannah the Suburban Witch, an intuitive tarot reader, astrologer, and eclectic witch, and I hope you're ready to get up close and personal with your favorite witches. In this episode, I am chatting with Jason Mankey. Now, Jason Mankey is an internationally recognized expert in the field of paganism and witchcraft, and we're going to be talking about his latest book, The Horned God. Now, I'm so looking forward to sharing Jason's work and wisdom with you today, so let's jump into it. Now, Jason Mankey is a third-degree gardeneering high priest who runs not one but two witchcraft covens in the San Francisco Bay area with his wife, Ari. Now, Jason is an authority on the Horned God, Wiccan history, and the occult influences in rock and roll. He is the previous channel manager and frequent blogger at Pathios Pagan, which is the world's largest pagan blog, as well as a prolific author of eight books. He's joining us via Zoom all the way from San Francisco. Hey, Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I hate listening to that biography. Like Llewellyn said, it needs to be like bigger, right? You need to be an expert and an authority on things. And anytime I hear it, I just sort of blush. (laughs) Well, you absolutely are an expert and I am thrilled to have you here. Now, I'm sure you do so much more than this as well. So would you like to start by telling us a little bit about what you do in the witchy world? So right now, like my focus is mainly being an author and writing books. And my first book was published in 2016 and I've written eight and a half so far, like the ninth book's about ready to be turned in. So that's a lot of books in a short period of time, and some of them are quite long. So that's really my focus more than anything else is, is the writing. I've been doing a lot of like podcasts and YouTube videos and things lately, not like by myself, but with other people. And as most authors do, I love hearing myself talk. So that's been really fun. Lovely. Now, with your latest book, which is The Horned God, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this book? So this is the book that I was supposed to write more than anything else. When I got into witchcraft and paganism in the 1990s, it was really sort of deity focused in a lot of ways. And I don't think that's the case so much anymore. But when you got involved, it was because usually you loved the goddess or something like that. And that was a really big focus for a lot of people. And that's what brought me in. But over time, I began to kind of feel this thrum and hum in my head. It's like this energy was kind of pushing me towards something. And that was the horn god. It's like, you need to acknowledge me. You need to like do stuff with me. And I was not somebody who really wanted to work with the horn god. I had a lot of baggage from Christianity. I grew up in the American South, so I wanted to avoid things with horns on their heads yeah. as much as I could. I didn't really feel like I had much choice, so I embraced it, and it was really beneficial for me in so many ways. I'm naturally pretty shy, but the horn god gives me a little more energy to be energetic and less shy, so that was very good. And after a few years of working with the horn god, I started doing workshops about the horn god, and I did them in a lot of festivals in North America. And that was fun. And then I tried to write a Horn God book, 2004, 2005, sent it to Llewellyn where it was promptly rejected, (laughs) finished it, published it on my own. It's really bad. They were right to reject the book. (laughs) And I was like, I'm never going to do this again. I'm not going to try to write this. It's beyond me. Not going to do it. You know, wrote a bunch of other books. And then one day I'm in the shower and all of a sudden I have like these ideas, like, if I did this and this and this and this and just put it together like that, wouldn't be so bad. And I bet they'd say yes this time. So I jumped out of the shower, 
didn't dry off, ran to where I'm at now, this computer soaking wet, and started writing up some notes. And then a few weeks later, they said, yes, you can write this book. So it felt like something I needed to do. And it felt like a calling from a higher power. There's mm-hmm. a lot of goddesses out there. There aren't a whole lot of books about horned gods. And I really felt like I was in a place to do that and do it justice. It sounds like it was divinely inspired, which is amazing. It sounds definitely like it was something that was calling you. So you said it was obviously rejected by Llewellyn back in 04. So what do you think has changed about what you've put together? What is it that made this one the book that came out? I think that I'm a better writer now. Mm -hmm. So I gave them writing samples and looking back on it, it's pretty bad. You know, writing is a muscle like anything Mm -hmm. else, right? If you do it more often, you'll get better at it. And I really wasn't doing it very often. I just thought, oh, I can just sit down and write a book. I'm smart and it doesn't really work like that. You really need to work on your craft and polish it and practice it. And writing blogs, weirdly enough, was really what helped me. Mm -hmm. I was writing three or four times a week. The more you write, the better you get at it. I found my voice through blogging. And I think that how books are written today is different from how it was just 15 years ago. I think because the internet things are much more conversational mm-hmm. and my tone has always been conversational. So I needed people to catch up with that so that they would let me publish those sorts of books. I also think the witchcraft world has changed in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend tell me once in the nineties that, you know, Llewellyn would never print like a horn God book because they didn't think it would ever sell. But because of traditional witchcraft specifically, I feel like there's a bigger interest in the horn god than there had been for quite a while and that it was more acceptable to talk about. And Llewellyn kind of realized that, hey, maybe this is the time to launch this book. So I think that's why it got published this time. Having it be my seventh book for Llewellyn was probably the biggest factor, though. Yeah, that definitely helps. And you're definitely more well-known now. People know your name and especially your work through Pathios as well. Three to four blogs a week, that is a great effort. As a blog writer myself, it can be really hard to to put those out there. So fantastic work on that regard. I don't yeah. do three or four anymore. I mean, <laughs> that, was, that was back in like 2012 when I first started before yeah. I was writing books. And then once I started writing books, you know, it really dwindled. Mm-hmm. It was, it's so much harder. There are only so many words in you in a given day or a week or a month. So mm-hmm. I don't do three or four anymore. I don't want people thinking that. It's more like <laughs> one a month. Yep, that's probably where I'm at as well. So (laughs) I'm glad I feel like we're on par now. Now, with your blogs on Pathios, I know you've stepped back from managing the the channel as a a whole. Was that due to the fact that your workload with your books has increased or was there another reason behind that? Some of it was workload writing has increased. I'm going to write a biography of Raymond Buckland, which is something Mm -hmm. Llewellyn asked me to do. And that frightens me greatly, writing a biography. Yeah. One thing to write about witchcraft one thing to write about history featuring long dead people and you know from thousands of years ago or whatever it's another thing to write about someone that means a lot to people who mm-hmm. you're gonna have to write about people who are still living it's a different skill set and I thought wow this is gonna be a lot of work mm-hmm. so maybe I should quit Pathios some of it too is Pathios because of its size is the biggest blogging thing and people knew that I was in charge of it I was a kind of a frequent target of mm-hmm. criticism sometimes and I'm sensitive it it like hurts sometimes you know it, people thinking that I spoke for all the pathos or you know or agree with everything the company did and other things you mm-hmm. know it just took a toll on me like some of these hairs are gray because of pathos 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, grey hairs are distinguished. I think they look they look fantastic. So don't stress about that. <laughs> no one sees them yet. That's no plan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now let's have a look. So you're you're talking about the horned god. Now some people will know of the horned god, but what other names does he go by? Are there other names within different traditions of witchcraft that it's the same deity but with a different name? See, that's that's the complicated thing because there are all these different ideas about deity, and I don't think that we really have the answer. I think if anybody thinks they have the answer, they have a lot. There's a lot of hubris there, you know. Mm -hmm. So for some people, the horn god is kind of a, a large deity made up of several components. Some people use it as a title for specific gods. Uh, specifically, the most common are probably the Greek god Pan mm -hmm. and the Celtic Kernonos. Uh, you know, so how people visualize it, how people interact with it is really different. I have a friend who's like, Jason, I don't believe in a bigger horn god. When I say horn god, I'm just calling Kernonos. Mm -hmm. And I believe in a bigger horn god made up of these various pieces, but sometimes I also call the individual pieces too. Uh, so deity is something that we all interpret differently. And I don't ever like to say that somebody is right or somebody's wrong. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. It's like I don't know what the good answer is sometimes because it is a complicated question. There's there's a whole chapter in the book about deities being like Plato because <laughs> that was just the only way I really could describe it. I mean, when you have Plato as a kid, like, you know, you can craft these beautiful things with different colors. And then when you're done, you have to like separate them, right? And be very careful or the colors blend together. And some people are really adamant about keeping everything separate. And some people are like, mush it together, you know, and let's just have a big giant brown lump of Play-Doh with streaks of orange running through it or whatever else. And I think that's how various people interpret the horn god, mm -hmm. kind of like Play-Doh. You know, some people like it to all be together. Some people like to keep it all very, very separate. I like that. And it's all still Play-Doh, right? So no one is right or wrong. It's all Play-Doh. Right. And it's still Play-Doh at the end of the day. And it's still fun no matter what, you know, whether mm -hmm. your blue is purple or not. It's still mm -hmm. fun. Yeah. No, fantastic. Now, a lot of people, so myself included and yourself, obviously, coming from Christian upbringings or living in Christian areas and getting a lot of those Christian ideas about, you know, horned god may be interpreted more like the devil in some people's minds so what do you have to say to people that might be coming from a place of fear about the horned god you know it takes a while to get over that conditioning because i think it's deep if you look at our society mm -hmm. when there is a bad guy it often does have horns on its head you know and it always breaks my heart you know this thing that i love so much oh it's the bad mm -hmm. guy so yeah. it, it takes a while to get over that and for a long time, witches especially were always very adamant, you know, we don't worship the devil. <laughs> and one of, there are a couple of problems with that. First of all, Christians think that anything that's not theirs is the devil. So they're never going to believe you when you say that. And yeah. ideas about the devil, I think, have influenced the horned god, especially the ideas about uh, the devil in relation to a writer named Margaret Murray. Margaret Murray wrote in the early 20th century. She was a brilliant Egyptologist. She's a pioneer in when it comes to women in academia. And she wrote two books about the God of the witches. One of them is called The Witch Cult in Western Europe. And the other one is called The God of the Witches. And she wrote that there was an ancient horned God that was eventually corrupted by Christianity. And people who worshiped it began to think of it as the devil uh, just because they had lost touch with it and what it originally was. 
And a lot of Murray's ideas still show up in modern witchcraft. So in some ways, there's a little bit of devil there. But if you really go back and you look at the devil of the witch trials and the era Margaret Murray was writing about, it's usually a very like positive figure in a lot of ways. It wants people to dance. It wants people to eat delicious food. It wants people to have initiation rites. It wants people to have sex. And, you know, usually they always said those were orgies. And if that's your thing, great. And if it's not, you really don't have to participate. And then they did magic, which is a lot like most modern witches today. Mm -hmm. The only bad thing is that they said that they did human sacrifice, especially of babies. But there's no evidence of anything yeah. like that ever happening. So, you know, like the devil of that era, it's pretty delightful, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, this is a, a shirt with Black Philip. if you've ever seen The Witch, you know, and he's like, do you want to live life deliciously? Yes, mm -hmm. I want to live life deliciously. I would like some butter on that. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds almost like there's some Dionysus vibes as well there that, you know, drink, have fun, be merry, that sort of live life and all its material pleasures. Yeah, I mean, we're, as, as a witch, I feel like I'm connected to the earth, right? I'm connected mm. to my body. So I'm connected to those things that bring me joy. That doesn't mean I should abuse those things by any means. I mean, you shouldn't drink a bottle of whiskey a day you know, you, sex should always be consensual. Mm -hmm. You know, there are lots of rules and things and they make life better, those rules. But we're still supposed to enjoy being in our bodies. And I think if we look at a lot of religions, they seem to actively frown upon you enjoying being in your body. It's all about waiting for some reward in the next life. Mm -hmm. And I think we've got a pretty good place here. You know, let's celebrate that and where we are and what we're doing today. I agree. We are a, we might be a spirit, but we are having a bodily physical experience and there is a reason for that and we need to enjoy it. Definitely. Yeah. I think the horn God is sort of a portal to enjoying mm -hmm. that. Exploring the horn God brings you closer to some of those ideas and those feelings and emotions and experiences. So horn God is a conduit to some of these things. Mm -hmm. And if you look at any God that's labeled a horn God, whether it's the devil or Pan or Kronos, they're always gods that are here on earth running around. And that's not true for a lot of deities. Mm. You know, like Pan is a great god. A lot of those gods lived on Mount Olympus. Mm. Not Pan. Pan was running through the hills of Arcadia with nymphs, chasing him, having a great time, drinking from his wineskin. You know, it's very different. Uh, even the devil, if you look at the devil, was cast out of heaven, you know, ended up living here, teaching people magic. Oddly, in some materials, he taught people mm -hmm. cosmetics. So if you wear makeup, apparently you're of the devil anyways. Yeah. And I do want to note as well for any of my Christian listeners out there that nowhere in the Bible does the devil actually have horns. So that oh. is something that has come along through history, uh, potentially influenced by you know the Catholic Church wanting to take the horned god of pagan religions and to turn it into something that was evil. So it kind of incorporated these horns into a lot of Catholic art and architecture and things like that so that we could see this horned god as something that was the devil in the Bible. It doesn't actually say anything about horns in the Bible. Absolutely. Like the devil was supposed to be a fallen angel, which would have made him pretty attractive. Yes, right? absolutely. So instead, like the idea was to draw him in a grotesque way, you know, to mm -hmm. make him scary looking. But, you know, like if you were to like run into something that's scary for the most part, you would run away. It doesn't seem yeah. like a very good way to seduce people. And when I think of anything that has horns, I often think of a goat and we often see, you know, like a, a goat headed God. 
goats are not, if you're going to pick a scary animal, a goat is not the scary one that you pick. They're not really scary, but goats are weird, right? <laughs> so when people were in the witch trials and stuff and they were thinking about what animals would be the familiars of mm-hmm. witches, you know, what forms would a witch possibly take or whatever? It was usually to, like animals that were nearby, domestic mm-hmm. animals often cats and dogs, but goats are special though, because while they're domesticated, you can never truly domesticate a goat, right? So they're, Mm. they're a very liminal creature. Like you can keep them in your backyard, but they're always a goat Mm -hmm. because they're, they're stubborn. They're not often nice. They have their own way of doing things. And that's really different than a dog who's kind of obedient, a cat (laughs) who they're never obedient in any way, but they they train us. (laughs) They're also smart enough, though, to realize, you know, that we feed them. So, mm-hmm. you know, they play along for that, you know. But goats are really different because they sort of live outside the norm. So mm-hmm. to me, the goat is a really great kind of figure to use. And when I think of witchcraft, I think of liminal spaces and people on the margins and stuff. And it reminds me of goats. I also mm-hmm. just love Goats are great. I actually used to live on a goat farm for a little bit in Louisiana, uh, working down there when I was young and free and traveling the world. And so I have a very special connection with goats myself, just because you know, I got to look after the baby goats and feed them. And it was adorable. You need to write a memoir. That's, that's fantastic. Oh gosh. That. There is, there is so much more to that, but that whole story, I actually have a little bit on my YouTube, if anyone is interested, uh, about how that almost kickstarted a lot of my spiritual experiences. Cause that particular goat farm, I had a major, oh, what is the word? A- an entity that made itself aware to me. And it really sort of cracked open a lot of the religious casings I had covered myself into, you know, realize there was more out there and I might be a little bit sensitive and I could potentially work with that. So, and that was the first first time I had a witch encountering as well a real life witch in the world because a friend had said you know it's Louisiana no one batted an eyelid when I said um I think there's something around me I I felt like I was crazy but no it was uh definitely something there and she said I'll bring my witch friend we'll come down and we'll help you out so that was my first encounter and it turned into what it is now which is my life and my profession so it's a great little it's a magical place. It really is. Mm-hmm. I, Orleans is one of my favorite cities in the world. Yes, agreed. Same. It's like in the bones of the city. It's great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, if someone is wanting to work with the Horned God, are there any do's and don'ts about that? I think sometimes, especially in books from the 90s in witchcraft that list deities, they list deities like they're vending machines. You know, call this deity when you want this. Mm-hmm. Call this one when you want that. And it's a, a deity is like having a friend. You don't just call a deity that you don't know and ask for something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should try to start a relationship. A lot of times with the horn God, it might be something that you feel. You might kind of be pushed towards a relationship. Uh, Pan especially is a very impatient fellow. Like he'll push you forward. Some of them are a bit more quiet. If you want a relationship and you're not getting that tug from one of them, you know, the best thing to do is to start with prayer and prayer sounds like so bad and so Christian, but prayer is just talking to deity, right? Mm-hmm. Building a relationship, uh, being outside saying, you know, Kernonos, are you here? You know, and feeling for signs and things. And so you want to talk to them, might build them a shrine or an altar as a way to get to know them. You want to fill that shrine or altar up with things that are sacred to the God. Often when it comes to the horn God, that means things like 
pine cones or acorns, you know, things from the natural world a lot of the time. And then you want to leave libations. You want to give gifts. Gods love to be flattered. If you read Greek myth, gods want you to say nice things about them. They want you to do things for them. And they want you to show, you know, some interest and appreciation in them. So leave libations. Libations are offerings to the gods. You can set up a libation bowl in your house and just pour like a little wine or beer or whatever it is that you like into that. Even water, if that's all you drink is water. As long as that gift means something to you, it's a great libation. We have little altars in our house where we pour all of our first whiskey to the gods and things. And or you can just pour it directly onto the ground while saying their name and say, this is for you. And that's how they accept it. Food offerings work, too. But I think that the less messy option is usually drink. <laughs> and it should be something that you like. It shouldn't be, oh, somebody left this can of beer here mm. that's, you know, 50 cents, you know, that's gross. I don't want to drink this. I'm going to give it to the gods. That's kind of insulting because you wouldn't offer it to your friends. Why would you offer it to the gods? You don't have to, like, leave them a gallon of something just a little bit is fine it's the idea it's the intention behind leaving the offering and offering should never be something that puts you into trouble like if oh you know i can give an offering or i can pay my rent rent mm -hmm. is the first thing that you need to worry about absolutely the gods, the gods understand that yeah and sometimes it can be as simple i know with my own uh, practice i often give the first sip of whatever i'm having so yeah, exactly. you know that way you're our not taking away from yourself. Really, our offering cups are really tiny. They're not, they're not giant goblets. You know, mm -hmm. they're, they're splashed there for the gods and they appreciate that. Mm -hmm. All right. So definitely don't, don't just ask, definitely build a relationship, have this back and forth, flatter them. Definitely. I interrupt your listening pleasure to ask you if you're enjoying this podcast. I ask because this series is a labor of love. And if you like what you're hearing, consider signing up as a Patreon supporter to see its continued success. Not only will you receive exclusive access to my private Facebook group, but also monthly live readings and moon ritual worksheets. Head over to patreon.com forward slash suburban witchery to sign up now. And now back to the show. Aside from the horned god, is there someone, because I do have a lot of people that, that watch and listen to my content that are brand new to witchcraft, and I try to make witchcraft as accessible to people and not scary if they're coming, especially from the Christian side of things. Is there anything that you would be recommending to people when they are just starting out their craft, if they are brand new? What's one piece of advice you would give them? Do what feels good. I don't think there are lots of rules in witchcraft, and some people get really angry about that. But I, I agree. But you do resonate with you and read a lot of things. And, you know, you can do some of those things, but if they don't work for you, don't do them. You know, use correspondences that make sense to you when you're doing witchcraft, whether you're doing a spell or doing a seasonal ritual or whatever. It needs to resonate within you. It needs to say something to you. And if it doesn't, it's not really going to be effective. So find the core of the thing that you love and go with that. There are no absolutes in witchcraft. You know, people like, you have to do this, you have to do that. You have to do what is best for you. That's the only thing that you have to do. Very, very good advice. And I wanted to say as well, so I have read, I've only read one of your books currently, which is the Witch's Book of Shadows which is a fantastic book, especially for anyone beginning their journey, wanting to know 
how to put together a book of shadows and how to, you know, what to put into it. And I just wanted to give you some feedback as well. You've got a little thing in there on how to make a binder more witchy and it's a little craft project, which I actually did with my four-year-old daughter this week. It was an absolute hit and it looks fantastic. So thank you very much for that. And if anyone wants to follow along at home, it is literally hot glue, uh, any symbol that you want on the front. She chose a unicursal hexagram. That was her choice. Uh, we put some little other bits of glue around it and then we paper mache tissue paper. She chose red so it looked very demonic for a little bit and then we painted it black and grey and covered it in gold glitter and it looks incredible. So she's very happy and I'm very happy as well. So your books are they're fun. They have useful information. And I love your conversational tone as well, which I, I guess you get from your blogging as well. Having that conversational, lighthearted tone absolutely comes through in your books. So if anyone's worried about reading The Horned God and it being a little bit scary, I can tell you, you can tell you are a nice person and a fun person when you read your words. I, I try. I will say I'm also very not artistic at all. So <laughs> when I do, when there's an art or craft in one of those books, I do it first and make sure that it's as easy to do as possible <laughs> because I need it to be easy to do or I'm going to fail. But that one was really fun. You know, I, you know, you sit down and I, I did it and then I wrote about it and, you know, I've read ideas like that before, but my version was a lot simpler than some of the <laughs> other. Um, yeah. But Lola well, loved the traps in the book. So especially mm -hmm. the Book of Shadows book. So that was fun coming up with all those things. Yeah, it's fantastic. And as I said, my four-year-old was able to do it. So if anyone's worried out there, and a lot of what you said in there as well was witchcraft doesn't have to be fancy and all of that. I mean, my personal Book of Shadows is multiple spiral notebooks. It's whatever works. I love my three ring binders. You know, mm -hmm. I can add things, I can take them out. You know, I can find things in them. To me, that's, that's really easy. And I have the handwritten ones too. You know, I think we have 10 or 12 books of shadows at our house between mm -hmm. Ari and I. So lots of stuff, you know, and they're all different in their own way. Mm -hmm. And I love as well. So in that particular book, you did mention uh, a lot of other magical texts within the world. Has it occurred to you that you are now an author of magical texts that someone in the future may be referring back to in a new book of shadows book? Oh, wow. That's wow. I need to stop writing now. That's scary. <laughs> You know, we do, we are, a we are a group of people of the books. So you, you do feel like when you write a book that you have a responsibility to give people good information. And there's always a chance in 20, 30, even 40, 50 years, people might still be quoting your book. And I think mm -hmm. that's a big responsibility. So I was trying to do my best. It's pretty daunting to think about really. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, you've done a really good job. Thank you. Thank you. The Book of Shadows book is the best-selling book I've written so far, though I think The Horned God will beat it eventually soon. But. Yeah, I think The Horned God, especially at the moment, has quite a lot of traction. And I, too, have noticed in, I guess, the witchcraft community, this it's almost like a shift recently where the thirst for knowledge, whilst it's always been there with people who call themselves witches, it has almost increased where they just are insatiable. It's like, give me all the information I need to read all of the books and know all about this craft so that I can make it my own. So I think you've hit it right in the right perfect time where people are desperate for this sort of knowledge, especially I haven't seen any other books on the Horned God myself. I haven't, I've seen lots on the, the goddess. You hear a lot about the goddess and especially with the goddess, she seems to be a lot more about tuning in and coming inside. Whereas the Horned God seems external a little bit, a little bit more physical. Yeah. 
you know, it is, it, we live in a golden age of occult witchcraft publishing. There are so many books on so many different things. I remember in the 90s, every book was a beginner book. You know, that was all you could do when I was starting my journey. And mm -hmm. now there are so many different books on just different types of witchcraft, certain aspects of witchcraft books, just about books of shadows and altars mm -hmm. and the maze and stuff. That didn't exist 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's really great right now. And, you know, some of them aren't good, but that's always been the, the way of things. And but a book that I don't think is good might resonate with somebody else in mm -hmm. a way too. It's just such a great time to be a witch who likes to read because there's so much out there. Yeah, absolutely. And even a witch that doesn't like to read because they can come onto things like YouTube or a podcast and listen and watch instead and take that information or pick up things from our chat today that they may not have gotten otherwise because not everyone can sit down and read a book for, you know, however long it takes. So I think it's a fantastic golden age of information for sure. Absolutely. When I remember when I was starting out, the thing that we had were magazines. I mean, that, I'm that old. The thing that we had were magazines and you could write a letter to someone and that was the only real way to communicate with people outside of where you lived. Mm. And sometimes that was the way to meet people where even where you lived, you would write them a letter and hope that they would write you back. You know, and today we can go on social media and find lots of witches. We can read articles by witches. We can watch videos by witches. Yes. We can listen to thousands of podcasts. There's just, so much information and it's not just books that people can access and some people don't read mm -hmm. and that's fine and i think you know for a long time that was sort of like looked down upon like oh you're not a reader well you don't know anything people mm -hmm. learn differently and process information differently and having all these videos available and workshops now one of the only good things of covid were the all the online workshops that were yes happening. you could just see tons of things from your own house without having to go anywhere because we couldn't go anywhere anyways. Mm -hmm. and yeah, it was, that's what's terrific. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think a lot of people took that time to, to really work on their craft and hone their skills as well, which was a great benefit to all of that time locked into our homes. What else were we going to do? Right. <laughs> that was it. Make banana bread, obviously. Yeah. I, I know my wife baked a lot during COVID. We yeah. tell our COVID ten. Or <laughs> yeah, my husband got started on sourdough. He, he yeah, went oh, yeah. right in on the sourdough, made this beautiful baby starter, and then we had to move into state, so he had to leave it home whilst we flew across the country. And he, oh, it was like he'd lost a baby. He was so upset about his baby start sourdough starter. <laughs> we we had we ran out of flour in the United States for a while. Oh wow. Because of all the sourdough bread, all the yep. baking things. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. crazy. Our neighbors had like bought pounds of it though and gave us some that they wrapped up like cocaine. So that was not not cool when they left it on our house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it sounds it's going to sound so crazy in ten or twenty years time when we talk about the things that we had to do, you know, we I would get my groceries and I would wipe them down with antibacterial wipes, you know. That would yeah. have been insane five years ago, and now here we are. We'd, we'd get up, go to the grocery store, and you're like you're wearing a mask and gloves. You go to the grocery store, mm -hmm. and then you get home and you immediately take off all your clothes and throw them in the washer. Yeah, and then you got super hot shower because you just think you're covered with disease. Mm -hmm. It's so very different. 
you know. It is, it was a totally different, totally different experience. I was pregnant at the time that COVID first started as well. So it was the fear factor was like, what's going to happen to me? And I'm just going to stay at home no matter what. It was, yeah, scary times. But thankfully, I know you guys have got the, the vaccine rolling out really fast along the United States. So that's, that's great that hopefully that's going to start curbing the spread for you guys. We're in a good place in California. High vaccination rates. People took the everything seriously, you know, from the start, you know, everybody wears a mask, even, even now people still wear masks mm-hmm. indoors. And our coven started meeting again at Beltane or <laughs> in your case, Samhain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so that was great. So, you know, we're slowly coming out of things here, though. In some places in the United States, it's just going right back up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, and we're very blessed to live where we live. We have a similar here. We almost eradicated it. And then we've just come out a few days ago of another, our fifth lockdown for our state and one of the other states. It's just going absolutely rampant. There is no end date to their lockdown at the moment. So it's the waves are crazy, but we don't have the vaccine rollout like you guys do. So it's... We'll get there. I know we will. And I did actually read your blog post that you wrote about the difference that COVID and lockdowns and things had on your coven and how it's going to change things forever, such as, you know, sharing that goblet of wine around at the start or anything like that. That's probably, is that a a dead thing that's going to be in the history books from now on? Uh, Hopefully, maybe Yule will be able to start again. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard to say. It's just right now, certainly not comfortable with yeah. it you know and hopefully one day we will be again maybe it was something that we needed to stop I don't know maybe mm-hmm. it was unhealthy but it was just such a nice like symbolic way to share mm. things with people. and they're all you know and it's a small group it's not like there's a hundred in our coven or anything yeah but you know COVID has changed things right I mean there's always these these things now in the back of your mind that weren't there before mm-hmm. And even going out now, like when things were sort of back to normal here for a little while, you know, somebody stands right behind me in a line. I'm like, what are you doing? Right. There's, there needs to be feet between us, not inches, <laughs> feet. Who yeah. are you? Why are you so close? Yeah. You know? We want the size of a kangaroo in between us. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the first time we held hands in ritual was like our third ritual back, you know, mm-hmm. it just took, it just took time to, to do some of those old things again and maybe some of them won't come back mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to say i mean but the craft always adapts and it always changes mm-hmm. and it's not supposed to stay the same you're supposed to update it to your circumstances yeah and people's level of comfort so if it doesn't go back to what it was that's fine too did you feel a difference in terms of any of the magic or the rituals that you were doing because of the separation that you had to go through or the i guess the physical distancing and things like that I'm a terrible solo practitioner. I'm not a good solitary witch. I need my coven. Mm-hmm. I, I need them to push me forward. I like doing ritual with people. So to not be able to do ritual with people for almost a year, mm-hmm. we snuck one in at our Samhain last October. You know, just masked, socially distanced, outdoors, didn't touch each other, barely made eye contact. Mm-hmm. You know, so we snuck one in. But for the better part of a year, we had nothing in. It was really rough because it's strange. Like you sit all day and you write about witchcraft. It's not the same as doing witchcraft. Mm -hmm. And there's something that's always really magical about the doing. 
that it excites me about the writing and things. And I got pretty depressed during COVID, not being able to see my coven, not being able to go out and meet other people and do things. And I think my craft suffered for it a lot. <laughs> you know, I was, I was a bad witch for a while. I felt like an armchair witch because I really wasn't doing enough magic. You know? mm-hmm. We just really weren't doing the things that we needed to do. I think a lot of people would definitely feel that along with you as well. So I don't think you're alone in that feeling of, yeah, it's it's not a bad witch, definitely not a bad witch, but feeling that way and feeling like you're not doing what you're here to do and part of what's what makes you you. Well, it's strange, you know, to do something for 10 years and then all of a sudden not be able to do it anymore, right? Mm-hmm. I, mean, that, I mean, that was an adjustment we all had to make during lockdowns or whatever else. But you don't realize how much you love something until it's gone and how much you needed it mm-hmm. until it was gone. So to take away my coven time when, you know, just hurt me in ways that I didn't think that I could be hurt. Yeah. Now, I want to ask as well. So you were talking before about back in the day it was magazines and writing letters. So how did you fall into finding a coven? How did you network that back before, you know, social networking was even around? We were lucky. We were in a college town at Michigan State University, go green, go white. And, you know, it's a big deal in the United States, some of us, all those college athletics. But uh, we had a pagan student group there. And mm-hmm. so we all met at the pagan student group. And after school, a lot of us still stayed in that town. So we still worked together. They weren't always the best covens. I mean, college kids are kind of transient, right? You're there for a while. And living in a college town, people would come in for school. Like one of my best friends went in, got his PhD. A couple of years later, you know, he's gone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the groups that we worked with were had a lot of turnover. You know, there were a few core people all the time, but a lot of turnover. But we at least had the experience to work with other people. And mm-hmm. that was because of the college group. And it was in the late 90s. So it didn't take, or mid to late 90s. So it didn't take very long until we were all on the internet. Mm-hmm. But those first two years really we were lucky that we had the college group at Michigan State Mm -hmm. to meet people and we also had a local bookstore which was nice and they used to do these psychic fairs they really weren't witchcraft events Mm -hmm. but if there were any witches in town that's where they would be at the psychic fair and they would bring in witchcraft writers as some of the special guests so Silver Ravenwolf was there once which was a big deal and in the 90s yeah especially in the 90s and Ray Buckling was there once too wow so that was really nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this the bookstore and the college group really made all the difference for mm-hmm. us. And we moved out to California 10 years ago. And my wife works in the medical field and she's on call. So mm-hmm. we tried to go out and find other covens, but we really couldn't leave the house a lot of nights because she needs her laptop. She needs to be available in case something mm-hmm. happens where she works. So we decided we'll just kind of have friends over and do ritual with them. And within six months, that had evolved into a coven, which was really nice to sort of mm-hmm. accidentally fell into our lap. And we've been doing things with those same people now for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So a lot of continuity there, which has been really great. I am I'm very jealous to hear that, actually. I'm a defense spouse, so we move a lot. We have moved annually for the last three years and set to again at the end of this year so I've recently because that calling to be around like-minded witches and to do ritual together it is it can be really really strong not for everybody some people are very happy being solitary but 
I, I'm a people person and I do what I can with the internet, but I've recently started up what I call the Transient Defence Coven. So it's an Australian <laughs> Facebook group and it's basically we can all connect anyone that's witch curious or considers themselves a witch or pagan. We can all connect. So when we do get posted somewhere new, we can have like-minded friends to catch up with or, you know, have our own little transient coven basically where people go in and out and move here and there but it's still that same core group of people or values or ideas and you know sharing information about you've just arrived here's the best place to get your supplies or this is where we do our moon circles that sort of thing so we'll get there in some ways you know I think social media can be really toxic but when it comes to connecting people it can it has some real advantages sometimes and Mm -hmm. makes a big difference and one of the things that I know here, at least, and I'm sure in most places now in the world where there's a significant amount of witches and pagans, there are open circles that people can go <laughs> and visit. And you don't have to do anything at the open circle if you don't want to. Just kind of jump in and mm. participate or see a ritual for the first time. And, you know, then you can go to where, you know, and go back home and do whatever you want. But it's mm. nice that there are options. And for a long time, there really weren't those options because people were keeping it very quiet. It was hard to network, you know, back in the 80s and the 90s. And now with just a little bit of work, you can usually find somebody somewhere at least Mm -hmm. to talk shop with. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take it doesn't take very long at all on social media to connect with someone who is, you know, a witch or a pagan or has similar ideals. Definitely. Yeah. And we're usually not very shy on social media, which is (laughs) like we're a loud little group. (laughs) I am witch, hear me raw. <laughs> right. Or cackle or whatever it is that yeah. we have to do. Cackle, yes. Now, I wanted to ask as well, so I know you know a lot about the occult influences of rock and roll, which is such a fascinating topic. Before we finish up, did you have any tidbits that you would like to share about the occult and the rock and roll space? Such a such a broad general question. I I love uh, history of rock music, and there's a lot of occult in rock music. I mean, Aleister Crowley is on the cover of Sgt. Pepper. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Page used to live in Aleister Crowley's old home, Boleskin, on the shores yeah. of Loch Ness. I mean, there's there's all this sort of coming together of rock music and the occult. And it's usually not very far from the surface, especially bands like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, which are always my favorites. You know, Led's, you know, one of the things about Black Sabbath and people always like, oh, Black Sabbath, they were all devil worshippers and things. Black Sabbath was almost a Christian heavy metal band. I mean, all their songs were about like being scared of the occult and telling people not to do it. So that's like one of the biggest misconceptions, you know, is that Ozzy's the Prince of Darkness. The one like Ozzy only ever wrote two songs in Black Sabbath. One of the songs that he wrote was the song Black Sabbath which was about an experience Geezer Butler, the bass player was having, who was legitimately into the occult. And Geezer had this book and it would like randomly disappear and then show up in different places in his apartment. And Ozzy wrote the lyrics to Black Sabbath about that. Like, don't do this. This, you know, this is real and Mm -hmm. maybe something's coming to get you, Mm -hmm. right? So it's always hilarious to me when people, you know, would say that Black Sabbath, you know, were the devil worshipers and stuff. They were sort of like the anti-devil worshipers. Mm-hmm. They might have opened a door for you, but they were also trying to close it in front of you at the same time. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I love I love hearing all about that. I'm not even a rock and roll 
listener. Like that's not even my thing, but I just love hearing the influences that it's had and some of the stories about people, you know, selling their soul to the devil to get fame and fortune and that sort of thing. I just think those myths and legends and ideas are just, they, there's something core to them. So we all find excitement in them, I think. <laughs> there's some, I think there's something about music, right? That mm-hmm. makes us feel emotion. It makes us want to do things in a lot of ways. So the idea of selling your soul to the devil to be a great musician is something that's a couple hundred years old. Paganini, mm-hmm. was a famous violin player, they accused Paganini of making a deal with the devil. Mm-hmm. Then you have early 20th century bluesmen in the United States walking to the crossroads and making yeah. a deal with the devil. The most famous story about that is Robert Johnson. Mm-hmm. But they're more apocryphal than, than real stories, most likely. Mm-hmm. Though, you know, in, in the American South, in the African-American community, there's a long history of magic. There's a long history of asking for things and doing mm-hmm. magical work. So it's not out of the question that people would want to get their guitar blessed by a different power in order to be able to play it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in some ways, I don't think anybody was selling their soul to the devil, but I do think there's a little bit of truth there and that people were using magical things in order to improve their singing and their playing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, Jimmy, I mean, Jimmy Page would have been doing spells to be a better guitar player and to make lots of money, you know, mm-hmm. didn't sell his soul, but... He was working with something, that's for sure. Mm. I can't recall off the top of my head, but I think there was one band who was using automatic writing to write their songs, and I cannot recall who that was. There's a lot of stories of bands that mm. say that, you know, they didn't think about the, the lyrics. They just sat down and wrote them, and they sort mm. of magically appeared. Robert Plant said that about Stairway to Heaven. You know, I didn't really think about it. I just wrote it, and then it came out, and then it was done. Yeah, that might have been... I might have heard some version of that where it came out like automatic writing or divine writing basically coming through the arm. Yeah. You know, there's an inspiration that catches us. And I think especially when the music's just a little bit magical sounding, you know, it's really easy to get into that. Do you find that with your writing at all that you sometimes almost get lost in it or feel like it just comes through you rather than from you? It depends on what I'm writing about. You know, like the Horn God book, it's not an academic text, but there's 270 footnotes in it. Mm-hmm. Writing footnotes is never stream of consciousness. Yes. You know, you have to stop and cite things. It mm-hmm. takes forever. But there are sometimes, especially when writing a ritual or writing an invocation in a ritual, where everything just sort of stops and you just don't think about it at all and the words just pour out. And those are the special times. And, you know, you hope that you've gotten something really good out of that. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. All right. Well, I think that's all today. So would you like to tell us where people can find your book, The Horned God? I hope it's everywhere. It's a Llewellyn book. It's I know it's available at all online sellers. I really uh, support local witch shops. So if you have a local witch shop, go there and ask for it. If they don't have it, they'll order it for you. And then it'll be on the shelves for the next person too, I hope. Mm-hmm. So that's always the best way. So they should be everywhere. And I'm online. Most of my Social media is at Pan Mankey, mm-hmm. like the god Pan, and then my last name. My last name is also a Pokemon, so I can't just use that all the time. I <laughs> awesome. So is that the best way people can get in touch with you is by your social media? Do you have you know your website that you want to let everyone know what that is? There, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I'm pretty easy to find in those places. Mm-hmm. There's a the blog, Raise the Horn of Patheos. 
you know, I still check the comments periodically a little bit. You know, I have a website, but who uses websites anymore? It's all about social media. Yeah, definitely. All right. So all the links for those, I'll pop them in the description box for this episode. Now, if you would like to book in with me for a tarot or astrology reading, you can do so at suburbanwitchery.com. You'll also find me as Suburban Witchery on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss one of these episodes. And as always, I hope you're having a lovely day wherever you are in the world today. And thank you very much for listening. 